Good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Just Like the Movies podcast. This is our sophomore effort, and we're going to talk about a movie that I'm really excited about. I'm Mike, and uh, during our uh, Batman podcast, there were several Bond references that got left on the cutting room floor, and I'm going to hand it over to the man who made those cuts to tell you what we're going to talk about today. John, take it away. Yeah, so we are going to talk about uh, 1995's GoldenEye in the uh james bond canon sphere uh we're going to be talking about the movie that uh i would say put james bond back into relevancy and also spawned in my opinion the greatest video game of all time wow um wow and and i know it's we're gonna get into it i'm sure because it really you know this is a movie podcast but that game is a big part of this movie so i'm sure we'll get into that later um, but, uh, how you doing, bud? I'm doing, on? I'm doing fantastic, man. I got a little frog in my throat, but how about you? <laughs> so before we started recording, you're like, yeah, I just, I drank some Gatorade and my voice was completely fine. Mm. I drink Gatorade and now I'm wrecked. It so was, it, it, it completely had the opposite effect of what I wanted, but, uh, <laughs> well, we're going to push through this. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So, um, GoldenEye. So that the first movie for uh, Pierce Brosnan as James Bond, and um, you had told me before uh, a few days ago that he was actually supposed to be Bond for License to Kill, right? No, well, The Living Daylights came before that, and he was the one they wanted for Bond after Roger Moore was done. That was one of the cuts from our last podcast that came up, but uh, oh right, yeah, okay. but he was he was tied up with that Remington Steel show that he was on. So they went with Timothy Dalton and um, he did two movies and there was, they went a new creative direction with it. They wanted to go darker and there was kind of a mixed response from critics and fans alike. In fact, License to Kill adjusted for inflation is the lowest grossing James Bond movie of all of them. So really? Yeah. And, uh, but, but the interesting thing about Pierce Brosnan finally getting cast is that, all that aside, they wanted to bring Timothy Dalton back for another movie. It was just there were the, the six years between Goldeneye getting made and when License to Kill came out, it was uh, there was a lawsuit, a failed merger, and and then all the countersuits involved, which is which is why the movie didn't get made in a timely fashion. And in that time, they lost a longtime director, a longtime script contributor, and Timothy Dalton even bowed out. Because the uh, the main guy, Albert Broccoli, he was the guy whose name's on every movie and his uh, his stepson and his uh, daughter are still heavily involved. They, um, <clears throat> he, he wanted to uh, bring Timothy Dalton back, but he said, if you come back, you can't just do one movie because he only had a three picture uh, deal. So right. Timothy Dalton just said, I would rather just be done with it. So then they they went and they got a new Bond, and it ended up being Pierce Brosnan. Did you see some of the other names they were looking at? I didn't do. I, I mean, I didn't do that well of research in that regard um, for this one. So you're going to carry the load on that stuff uh, for this podcast. But I always made this joke that I I don't know why he didn't deserve it um, uh, regarding Timothy Dalton. But I always kind of made this joke that when you line up all the James Bonds, they're all this like suave, charismatic looking guys and timothy dalton looks like you're like your local deli owner and you're just like <laughs> walt, 
<laughs> he just like waltzed into the role. Uh, that is a little harsh, man. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think I, the the interesting thing is I read somewhere that Timothy Dalton's movies are actually kind of making a comeback with the Bond diehards. Like there's a new appreciation for them, even though there are only two of them. I mean, License to Kill was pretty, pretty grim. Like, there was a scene I, I remember in License to Kill where the villain put a dude in, like, a pressurized room and blew him up like a Hot Pocket. And it's like, that's very not Bond. That's kind of, that's not fun, you know? Yeah. But, uh, um, I think my favorite Dalton film would have to be Beautician and the Beast because of... Uh, <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> Fran, Fran Drescher, my man. Um, our listeners, you know, don't know this, but uh, I... I have a big affinity for Fran Drescher in The Nanny. So uh, we'll leave it at that. I, I didn't know that either, man. I think that's that's something you kept kind of a, a secret from some of your friends. Well, if this is an exclusive reveal to you, then welcome to my <laughs> fandom of Fran Drescher. But uh, I digress on that. Um, all right, so Goldeneye, you, you know, we both just did rewatches. How did it uh, How did it hit you on the rewatch? Um, I really enjoyed the movie. I mean, I saw it a bunch of times when I was a kid and uh, the, the set, some of the set pieces, the stunts were just like, I don't have that great of a TV. And when he does the, when they do the opening jump off the dam, it was like, I still got a little like vertigo, what, like watching some of the shots come in because of how high it was. Um, and then there was like, and that movie yeah. went from, Set piece to set piece to set piece. It also has the highest body count of any Bond movie. Is that true? Even as f- as far as Bond killing people, yeah, I don't know about any other events that happened, but it, but it, because it was huh. supposed to go in that same dark direction that they were going into with Timothy Dalton, and he didn't come back. Um, another thing I found interesting about the uh, the script writing process was. This movie had so many similarities to True Lies that they had to make all these changes on the fly. And uh, hmm. since that draft has never been, you know, has never been made public, we can only really speculate what those changes are. I, I hope it wasn't something like they tried to give Bond a family. I don't think that was it. Right. I, I, there has to be. There has to be some um, sort of rules that you can't disobey with bond that was passed down or something over the years uh i mean you would think just for the sake of um preserving the legacy of the character because you know people are always wanting to reinvent or, or evolve ongoing things and like oh when they do this sequel they should they should uh add this to the mix it's like well why not just tell a brand new story that does that like this is james bond this is who he is for good or for bad um, I agree. Like Bond with a family, that'd be insane. Yeah, I think that'd I think the parallels had to have been that it involved nuclear weapons instead of an EMP, which became kind of the I, that became kind of the go to thing in movies for the next ten years. I mean, they had it in Ocean's Eleven, they had it in Broken Arrow. It was like some screenwriter read a paper about how that's a side effect of a nuclear explosion, and then people were like, "Hey, that's a great way to steal things to just black out the power in a huge area." Um, but. <laughs> or it was maybe something involving like um, a normal what to do housewife getting wrapped up in some sort of spy level espionage or you know the Jamie Lee Curtis uh, angle oh definitely uh, but it, it's like one of those things where I will never know but it came up several times yeah. when I was researching was that 
because I do want to do True Lies maybe sometime down the road. And there were so many similarities to this movie that they had to make changes midstream among all the other problems it was having. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed the rewatch. There were a couple things that didn't go down quite so smooth. For example, as much as I love uh, Famke Janssen, I think that's how you say her name. Um, her, her whole I'm so horny anytime somebody's about to die, including myself, act really got old. I thought. I thought it was a little too campy. <laughs> And, uh, like, even when, like, the scene where he, he, he parks the, the tank on the train tracks, and she's like, he's going to derail us. Like, she's so horny that she's yeah. about to be dead, and it's, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It, it, it was like they pushed the gimmick just a little too far. I mean, what, what did you think of it, of it rewatching it? <laughs> that that's fair i mean i'm not the biggest james bond historian or fan but i know they like the idea of their villains having a thing mm-hmm. and her thing happened to have been like violence and sexuality um and even how she kills people in that sexual way with her legs and you know we can get into that later because um, we actually have a mini little uh, exclusive uh, behind the scenes on that oh but, wow cool um <laughs> Yeah, it just happened to be. Um, well, I guess I can get into it right now, real quick. Mm-hmm. On our uh, my Star Wars podcast, we had the stunt coordinator Eunice Huthart, and she um, worked on the Rise of Skywalker, and she's worked on movies uh, for the last thirty years. And her first job was Goldeneye, and she was Fomka Janssen's, or I always say Jansen. Either way, you know who we're talking about. She was her stunt double, and she said she worked with Pierce Brosnan. And he did all his stunts in that sauna fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she just, she was laughing cause she's like, how many girls get to say they had their legs wrapped around Pierce Brosnan? Uh, <laughs> but, but she said he was really nice, easy to work with, um, a, a very down to earth guy. Uh, but he did all his work and she did most of the flips and the stuff with the towels. And, and, and when, anytime you see her getting whipped around where you don't see Fomka's face, she, she did that work, but you were, you were saying something about. Uh, Fomke actually got injured doing some of her stunts there, right? Yeah, she broke a rib. Um, it, I, from what I read, it was just that the, where Bond's slamming her against the walls, they were going over how to do the scene, and she's like, well, the walls are padded, it should be fine. And then he broke one of her ribs. I don't know if that take got left in the movie, but... Um, you gotta leave that You gotta leave that in, right? Yeah, I think I would think so, but you never know. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> no, I yeah, I'm not... It was a little over the top, and I don't know how she stacks up against other Bond villains in terms of ridiculousness. Um, but I would I would agree with that take. It, it was a bit much, especially when she's firing off the machine guns and basically having an orgasm at the same time. It's like, what what is going on? <laughs> like when when she hits the tree and the the helicopter's suffocating her against the tree, I'm surprised she wasn't like getting off there right. to her own death. Yeah, I mean, they pushed it that far. And it's a shame because 006 is, in my opinion, one of the best villains ever. And it's not so much, it's it's not really his performance so much. I mean, Sean Bean's always good, but it's more the fact Dude. that if you're going to have a villain, have it be a guy who has all the same training as you, and you've actually spent a lot of time together. And like it, the way they established the shorthand that those two had in that facility scene was crazy. Like when I was rewatching it, like how they they had they just had the dumb little code words, which seemed a little cheesy to to the kind of the viewer. But then, like Al- Trevelyan's running, and then he just like throws an AK to Bond, and he just catches it and like doesn't even look. 
while he's getting something else set up. Yeah. Um, do you know where that name came from, Trevelyan? Because I always thought it was really interesting. Alec Trevelyan. Did you? Did I don't you know. Stumble across that? Okay. Trevelyan was there was a guy named I think his name was John Trevelyan, and in the '60s he was a British film censor, and he hated Bond movies, and he always talked about how the the callous sadism of James Bond when Sean Connery was playing him. So in this weird Easter egg, thirty years later, they decided to name the villain, give the villain that guy's name, which I thought was pretty interesting. And he was supposed to be a much older. That's, yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, he was supposed to be a much older character. He was supposed like they were talking to Anthony Hopkins at one point to play him, and he was going to be more oh, of a god. Yeah, but he was going to be more like a mentor type to Bond. Um, but th- that was one of the, I think that was one of the maybe that was one of the changes that had to get made. With everything going on with Dude, I mean, True Lies. All, all due respect to Anthony Hopkins. I mean, I, I don't know how old he would have been then. Maybe in his like mid fifties. But um, yeah, I mean, I and maybe I'm the wrong guy to talk about that because I, I gotta say this. You know, I was joking about you know, well, half joking about my fandom of Fran Drescher before, but legitimately, I am a Sean Bean fan. Man, like I love him in. Like, I thought Game of Thrones was the best in season one because he was in it. Uh, it never got better than that to me. I loved him in the um, Tom Clancy movie he did with Harrison Ford, uh, Patriot Games. Yep. I loved uh, his work on this movie, um, even Lord of the Rings, which I'm not even that big of a fan of. I thought he was great in his uh, Lord of the Rings movie. So, uh, and I, it's the, the, the whole joke about Sean Bean is he, he never survives movie season. Like mm-hmm. that's it. That's his. He's always killed off in, in his stuff, but uh, he is so good in this movie. And I thought I you made such a good point that they sold that camaraderie in a very short period of time in that first scene, so that when we get to him in that graveyard weird place where all the statues are, the and statue stuff, park. It that pay the statue park. Yeah, it, the payoff works Mm -hmm. because they sold us on the two of them at the beginning of the movie if the beginning of the movie doesn't sell us on those two being friends and longtime uh uh, co-workers uh then the whole thing just unravels uh so out of the gate they had to hit it and like you say i think they did and they were able to do it in a very short period of time so that we can keep telling the rest uh, the main part of the story yeah, and uh, I, I want to get to something else in a minute, but I, since we're talking about performances, we might as well talk about what you thought about Pierce Brosnan's freshman effort, since I'm doing the class structure thing. Um, I, I like Pierce Brosnan. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of his. Um, I know he's like a really good dude from what you understand, and he's gone through a lot of hardships, and when... I know it doesn't matter for performances, but it, that always endears me to actors or actresses when I know that they're not garbage human beings. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I, I I thought he was good. I mean, some of the writing, I think, was tough for him to get past um, in terms of the hokiness, the cheesiness, the innuendos. Uh, I think this movie was a little too heavy on the innuendos because I even went back in pairing with watching this. I watched some old Connery Bond movies. I watched... Um, uh, from Russia with love and uh, it's you know he is very I don't know what the word is uh, sexual in a way uh, but he it's not like dad jokes like Bond's 
sexual humor and GoldenEye is like very pun driven and, and whatever innuendos. Uh, I'm always one to rise for a challenge. Opens up the cooler and there's like frothy champagne in the middle of it. I'm like, come on, man. But I thought he was good. I thought he was good because the, the what I judge him on are the serious moments when he sees Alec and mm. you could see he's hurt and or at the end uh, when it's time for vengeance and he lets him go uh, in, 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 in the action too. He's believable in his action. Some actors are very good actors but when it comes to them being athletic or are acting or trying to throw a punch they look terrible he looked like he was very good at doing what he did in this movie and you could tell not like mm-hmm. die hard where you see you clearly see bruce willis's stunt double rolling down the stairs you see <laughs> pierce brosnan in the mix doing stuff in this movie and he does it very well so i think overall if you get past the hokiness of some of the dialogue which isn't his fault and get down to the meat and potatoes of his performance in the serious scenes and mixed with the action stuff, I thought he did a great job. Yeah, I, I think he did a good job too. All things considered, I actually think that his um his his freshman performance was a little uptight uh, in certain scenes. Like when he introduces himself, when he does the Bond line for the first time, I it seems like he was pretty uptight doing that. And there were a couple scenes where he wasn't really keeping his cool, where it seems like Bond would have kept his cool, um, but. I, the interesting thing about well, like when he when, when he chops her in the back of the neck. Oh yeah, that was straight out of Austin Powers, man. Just judo chop, just Nigel Powers style. But um, he, he looked pissed too. <laughs> well, or when he when they're on the train and he just he said he's like he screams up at them. It's like, come on, man, you got an AK pointed at them. They get the idea. They you know they're but. Um, I the interesting thing about Pierce Brosnan is I think as the movies. The the four movies he did, with all due respect, I think they steadily got worse. But his performances, he became more at ease with being Bond. It was just a lot of stuff about those movies weren't as good as Goldeneye. Because Goldeneye is one of my favorite Bond movies. It's definitely my favorite movie with him in it, for sure. It's not even close. And I think it's one of my top yeah. three Bond movies. Um, I don't know where it ranks for you, but... Uh, I'd I'd put it I'd put it right up there. Yeah, because I'm not the biggest Bond fan, I would have to say Goldeneye um might be one of my favorites if not my favorite Bond movie just cuz of the impact it had on me. And that's, you know, basically the, you know, our theme for this podcast are these movies that kind of formed us and and influenced us and and hit us at that right time. And you know, we're 13 or 12 when that movie comes out. And uh, the game follows it. And that is just one of those things that everyone in our age in that pocket knows what that summer was when you're with your friends playing N64 and and playing the multiplayer and all that stuff. So everything that went with that fortifies or pushes this movie maybe in a cheating way up to more towards the front than maybe it should be for me. But um, I will agree with you that out of his four movies, this was the best. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was bought in on his other movies, too, off of how much I liked this one. And um, I know he wanted to keep playing Bond after Die Another Day, and they they wanted to go in another direction because of his age or whatever. Uh, But I feel like they jumped the shark pretty hard in Die Another Day with some of the stuff they did. So, Oh, for um, sure. I mean, this was the reboot Bond. like. This was the first Bond movie to use CGI, and then we saw where that all went when Die Another Day came out with that surfing scene. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm Exa- really glad you brought exactly. That. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because 
you know, I think it with for there's two reasons why this is you can make the argument that this is the most important Bond movie ever made. Not the best one, but you can make the argument that it's mo- the most important. The first is, um, be- as I mentioned, that uh, you know there might not have been a Bond franchise if those lawsuits continued the way they went and a new movie never got made. Maybe there'd be no more Bond movies. And Digital Spy did a great article about it. That's where I got all that information from. Um, so if you want to know more about oh, the cool. lawsuit and all that stuff, just Google Digital Spy, James Bond, legal trouble, and should come up. But uh, before I get into the reason I think this is the most important Bond movie ever, did you see this in the theater? Oh, man. I don't think so. Okay. I didn't either. It, you, you know what's funny, Mike? I I want to say, this is going to sound crazy. I want to say I played the game before I saw the movie. I would buy that. I mean, I, the reason I saw this, I did not see this movie in the theater. I didn't grow up in a Bond household. Like, my dad wasn't a Bond fan. Um, those weren't the kind of movies we watched growing up. But, and and yeah. uh, so this was the first Bond movie I ever saw. And I saw it because we, my dad knew a guy who knew a guy. So we had a scrambler box. So we got all the pay-per-view channels for free and all the cable channels for free. Nice. Yeah, that worked out for about six or seven years. Um, but I got to watch, that was where I first watched Goldeneye. And it was so, I thought it was so good. And I was so interested in it that it got me interested in Bond. So then the next Christmas, I asked for... The they started releasing the Bond movies in these collector sets, and I got the first six Bond movies with with Sean Connery in them, in the in the uh, collector set yeah, on VHS, of course. And that was uh that was one yeah. of the one of the Christmas presents I got. But I think the the real lasting importance of this movie isn't the fact that well, it's the fact that it, it continues the franchise, but also I would make the argument that there's a generation of people who are into Bond that weren't before. Because yes, yes. I mean, I hadn't seen a Bond movie, and I didn't pay to see this one in the theater, but I paid to see every one since then in a theater. Me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that this uh, reintroduced Bond to everybody, and it saved the franchise uh, off of, like you were saying about License to Kill in its box office. This was six or seven years after that. I think six years after that. Um, in in the grand scheme of things, six years isn't a long time. But when you're off the grid completely as a franchise for six years with nothing coming out, no other uh, you know uh, books or anything that has to do with James Bond, James Bond was dead in the water. And right. they tried to revive it, and they did it. And, and maybe that's where you're getting at about how this is the most important Bond film. I, I said you could make the argument, definitely, because I think if you ask people our age, I think a lot, this is, between this and the video game, it completely, it brought this new, younger demographic to Bond, for sure. Like, I, I knew a couple, I knew this one guy I went to college with, like, he read all the Bond books, and he knew the movies backwards and forwards, but, I, I mean, I don't think that was typical for people our age. I don't think there were a lot, I, I, know, I don't think a lot of my friends were into Bond before this came out uh, i don't know i don't know if you had the same experience but i not really yeah i mean this really started it all this might as well have been the first james bond movie if like and that's not to insult the legacy of sean connery and and uh, roger moore or anything like that even george lazenby but 
Uh, what about David Nivens? Uh, I don't even know who that is. They did there was another night- one I missed. No, it was they. They did this t this one hour TV movie called Casino Royale! Exclamation point! It was like a spoof. It was pre Sean Connery. It was a. It was a. I just ah, did. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. It would be so easy for this to just go into the weeds to discuss the entire Bond franchise as a whole, but I'm gonna really try not to do that. But I just wanted to do that kind of as a bit. David Divins. No, yeah. yeah. Um, I so. <clears throat> You know, we we love action movies. We love Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. And all of his movies have that over-the-top element that you're just like, that is so ridiculous. But I love it because it is. And I feel like James Bond has a lot of that. Um, I think they took it to new heights in this this era that kicked off with Pierce Brosnan. Because when I look back on, like... um, License to Kill, even. It's very subdued. I don't remember anything insanely over the top with it for action scenes. Um, besides, like, uh, you know, man-eating fish or whatever that... Yeah, they, was, fed, but, they feed his dude um, to a shark. Yeah. So, then this movie opens and he flies a motorcycle... And somehow catches up in a free fall as a human catches up to a falling plane, gets in the plane, writes the plane, and flies away. And and that's them telling us this is the type of movie you're getting, and we want to let you know <laughs> out of the gate, so you're not like bl- blown off later. That oh wow, what a pay- no no, we're doing this stuff, and we're letting you know we're doing it immediately. <laughs> yeah, and that was after a big shootout in a in a gas a chemical plant, and then. You know, Bond running around and beating some guys up, shooting some other dudes. And then, yeah, that I mean, that that was a cool yeah. set piece. Was it totally in accordance with the laws of physics? Uh, probably not. But it was it was really cool to see the uh, when he jumps. off yeah, the, yeah. When he jumps off the dam, that was all real, though. That was a that was a real stunt they did. And it, it, it set a record at the time. Yeah. It might still be a record for longest free fall. It was like 700 something feet. Um. But they went right from that into the stealth piece, and then they're shooting all these guys, and then right into that. And that's like that. So you've got these two amazing set pieces in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Plus, as you mentioned, they very succinctly establish how the relationship he has with his friend and partner um, before killing him off, or so we think. Right. Right. I I do got to laugh at just the. <laughs> the the stupid subtle like facial burning they gave Trevelyan they're like yeah he didn't make it out in time he survived but not not all of them and yeah, it's just like he's Hollywood ugly just a little just his a eyes little are fine. just a little 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 Ray Liotta on the side of his face you know um, <laughs> Ray, oh, Ray Liotta man. has terrible skin this is not I'm not I'm not I'm not revealing anything new here, okay? Or like uh, Robert Dobby. But no, it's it, it. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Agent yeah. Johnson from uh, Die Hard. No, the other right, one. So, <laughs> yeah, yes, that guy. Whew, brutal face for radio. <laughs> uh, if he does it. Um, yeah. So one other thing, another thing I wanted to bring up to talk to you about was. They do over-the-top stunts, but then they also do very simplistic things. 
um, which may be more of the Sean Connery speed of Bond. Like, he beats a dude's ass with a towel. <laughs> I saw that scene, and he takes a towel, wraps it around the guy's head, and then like, kind of like pirouettes him down a flight of stairs. I'm like, I laughed so hard at that scene because he just hey, he has all these gadgets and all these things he can do, and he knows jujitsu and all this stuff, and he's like, no, I'm beating this guy's ass with a dinner towel. <laughs> I, I thought the, uh, some of the fight scenes were, were were really good, especially the last one with him and Trevelyan in the cradle dish, like the. Uh, that and they kind of yeah. they did the move way before it's time where you have a climactic fight and you don't have any music like they had the awesome score going up to that where they're shooting at each other to no avail but then once they're fighting it's just you could hear them grunting and moving around and like breaking stuff and whatever the case might be um yeah but it was like that was a I mean, we, i'm sure at one point you were going to ask me what the what your favorite scenes are and just that whole sequence. I remember that was the one that really got me enamored when I was a kid because, you know, it had the score come up and then it has this it has this awesome uh, backdrop of the satellite dish. That's a real place, by the way. That's an observatory in Puerto Rico. They used it in um, contact. Did you hear that it's it's like, it's collapsing? Is, oh, is that right? <laughs> I, I did not know that. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's the, there's this big thing about it recently, actually. Um, that it's like, uh, it's giving way and there's nothing they could do about it. Wow. That's, that's unfortunate. I mean, you could see the CGI when they're fighting at the bottom. It was pretty obvious, but, um, the actual setting, I believe was real and the giant satellite and the water flooding too. Yeah. I mean, you could, yeah, that, that observatory wasn't, I don't think it was posted up underground. I think that's a, that's a bond invention, but, um, anyway. So what do you what do you think about? I mean, this happens a lot in movies, but the whole thing about like Russians in Russia speaking English. I know that's something they do in movies to make it the ease of the um, viewer. Um, but I feel like now modern movies try to be more authentic with that and do subtitles. So right. it it definitely it it definitely positions it in mid 90s like they they just did that all the time no matter where they were whether it's in the middle east asia russia those they're all speaking english but with accents of that geographic location you know what do you think about that do you have any issues with them doing that yeah i think that's definitely something they that was just a product of the time to make it more you know because who likes to go to the movies to read subtitles i mean it could have been worse it could have been like enemy at the gates where all the all the Germans were Americans and all the Russians were British. Uh, I don't know if anybody saw that movie, but, um, and then you got a French. I, I did not see that. Movie, yeah. No. Well, it's a sniper movie. A lot of people get shot in the head if you're interested in that kind of thing. But um, <laughs> the guy they got to play who played Mishkin, uh, you know, kind of a bit part. He's only in two or three scenes to kind of show that Orumov had a boss. Um, he was the minister of defense. He's a French guy. And I mean, I could get into all the reasons why that there's some historical merit behind that because but people didn't want people don't want to listen to a half-ass history lesson they want to listen to us talking about gold night so um yeah yeah that's right. that's an interesting point i didn't really uh i didn't really have a problem with it i mean it's just something to make it a little more accessible to the viewer plus i mean none of those people are really russian uh i'm not gonna say her name right isabella skorupako 
She was Natalia. She was Swedish, I believe. And then uh, Alan Cumming is British. Yeah. And then I don't know about anybody. Famke Janssen's Dutch. Uh, Godfrey John, the guy who played Orumov, I have no idea what his nationality is. He was just kind of a little dandy in a He's uniform. German. Oh, is he German? Okay, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Good pickup. I, did, I remember there being a lot of flack uh, towards Famke Johnson, Jansen. I'm, I'm going to say her name wrong, Mike. I don't care. That's um, You don't like I the do soft not, J? Yeah. I don't like like I'm Yanni. Is that what you're? Is that what <laughs> like you're gonna go here? jogging with your wife? Yes, right, right. I'm gonna go on a yoy ride. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there was a lot of flack given to her about her Russian accent, and I gotta. Uh, it is it is maybe a little too uh, uh, Natasha from Bullwinkle, uh, but uh, you know that's stuff I get past. I don't nitpick that kind of stuff with movies and the same way i don't nitpick them speaking english i'm like well, i get it you know i get past that right but like my 2020 brain is like for some reason i should be annoyed about this wait a minute no i'm not stop being a douche yeah stop giving a shit man it's not really important really it's it's an american right. <laughs> you know it's an american movie made primarily for american audiences just stop you know even i yeah. i used to sneer at people who would say like Oh, I don't like subtitled movies. I don't go to the movies to read. And I've never said that, but I do get annoyed more, especially when you look at Netflix and just all the so your cho- all the TV options they have that are from other countries and it's like your options are bad dubbing or subtitles. And no but and I don't know about you, but I don't really I don't really focus just on a TV show. I'm always doing other things. I'm looking at things on my phone or walking around so it helps if i don't have to have my eyes on the screen all the time the, i don't it, that doesn't bother me the whole and speaking english and all that stuff i think it you're right that is a very modern affectation and it's like should i should this bother me i mean it doesn't bother me it bothers people i know but that that gets kind of taxing like the the authenticity yeah. of accents and well they really should be speaking this language here it's it's like, or they don't have to. You could just, what I do in my head to suspend disbelief is I just assume that they're just putting it through Google Translate for me. Like they're speaking the language they're supposed to be speaking. Right, it's yeah. just for, for all, for our purposes, just for streamlining the story. Let's just, let's just have it come through as English. No big deal. <laughs> Not a thing. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, so in terms of, um, Bond continuity and legacy, uh, we would be uh, remiss if we didn't talk about uh, Q, Desmond Lewin, uh, who's been, uh, was with uh, the James Bond movies since I think like the second Bond movie, from like 1963. Mm-hmm. Um, he was about 80 when he came back to play him in Goldeneye, and I'm sure longtime Bond fans uh definitely got their uh fan service and, and pumped their fists when they saw him pop on screen uh for his his scene in this movie which i always love the q scenes it, it brings that levity it kind of it's like it's like halftime at uh during a bond movie like when you need like a, a little break or a breather yeah, you pop w- it into neutral and you have your little fun with him and uh, i i i i love this scene and there's one observation i made during it I'll bring it up in a second, but I want to get your take on uh, him as uh, an institution in Bond and in his scene in this movie specifically. Oh, yeah. He's uh, 
That guy's great. I This one piece of trivia I picked up about him was, so he shows up in that green suit and it looks like he has, it looks like he slept in it for two weeks. That's because he did. He showed up wearing this green suit that he hadn't taken to the cleaners in two weeks because he, that's kind of what he thought the character would do, which I thought was kind of a cool detail. He was wearing this rumpled green suit. Um, he also had one of the best on-screen exits from a franchise I've ever seen because they didn't kill him off or anything. But in I believe it was it was the world before they changed him to uh, John Cleese. He just, he had some pithy line. I don't even remember what it was. And then he just kind of disappears into the floor. And then you knew, if you were watching the movie and you kind of tr- follow that stuff, you knew that he had passed away right around the time the movie came out. So it was kind of like his on-screen exit. Like, that was, that was really cool. But uh, his scene um, where he's always giving Bond just the right gadgets that he needs <laughs> that's that's one of those Bond criticisms that I don't know if you can really get around. It's like, he just gets these gadgets and they always end up coming in handy. But I thought the gadgets were really cool, like the laser watch and the belt and then the um, the car, which we'll get to that in a minute when we talk to the, about the merchandise section. And of course, oh, yeah, you're signaling me. Go ahead. <laughs> the pen. <laughs> the pen is the best part, especially at the end when Boris is like flipping it and clicking it and, and Bond is counting the clicks in his head and yeah. uh, the exploding pen. Yeah. 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 They test it and Q and, uh, and Q's like, don't say it. Bond's like, the writing's on the wall. He's like, along with the rest of them. <laughs> that's one, that's one thing I never realized I thought was so funny is watching dummies blow up. It's hysterical. It makes me laugh every time watching a dummy blow up. It is pretty funny. Yeah, yeah it is pretty funny. Um, so one thing I wanted to bring up about his scene is uh, there's one part where I forget what he is uh, explaining to him. Um, oh, when he's talking about the belt. Uh-huh. Um, he, You can see him looking. Be- it, you know, like SNL skits. And you can you can see where the actor's eyes are because they got to read the cue cards. Mm-hmm. Um, he he's looking behind Pierce Brosnan, and you see his eyes going to the left. He's he's picking up his lines off of cards, uh, and it's really clear as day. If you now rewatch that scene, you'd be like, "Oh wow, that guy's getting his he's reading off cards." But you know what? That's fine. <laughs> he's eighty. He's the longest you know tie to the franchise, and I'm fine with it. I just thought that was a funny observation that probably most people won't point out. But and you know, I'll miss significant plot stuff in a movie. But for some reason, my dumbass finds something like that. I'm like, hey, look at that guy looking at the freaking cue cards like Chris Kattan in 2001. <laughs> yeah. At least he wasn't using an earpiece like Marlon Brando was at the end of his career. Just couldn't even be bothered to read cue cards. He was just getting fed lines through his through his earpiece and just repeating them. But uh, I'm gonna go on a quick tangent, a brief tangent. Did did you ever see Chris Reeve on like Letterman? I forget what it was. Just absolutely thrash Marlon Brando. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. <laughs> he just like unloaded on him about how he's unprofessional and he doesn't like working with him and he would never work with him again. And like you never see that these days on late night talk shows. He went, he he took him to task, and it was pretty awesome. Yeah, you can't you can't do that anymore. You know, you gotta. Everybody's got to play nice. Everybody loves each other. We're all best friends on and offset. That's always how it is. 
But anyway, you just have to make make Jimmy Fallon laugh by saying anything. He'd be <sighs> like, "My dog died." He'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> "That that's quite enough about that man." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as far as um, I don't I don't want to get too bogged down with this because. You know, it, it's an interesting thing. Have you ever you have you've heard that fan theory about 007, right? It's a pretty common one that James Bond isn't one dude; it's an alias that passes from person to person. Yeah, yeah. Well, we well well yeah. we all know how you feel about fan theories from the last one. You're not. I I mean I I just think it's interesting that it's out there and they're really taking it to the nth degree with this new movie that's coming out where they're possibly making Bond a woman, which, you know, completely ruins any any aspect of possible continuity. But it was what was interesting about this movie was it was the first Bond movie to make references to how old everybody is. Because he has that line where he says to Trevelyan, you're you're out to settle a score with the world fifty years on. So he's saying you you've been around for at least fifty years. Because he was his parents were betrayed by the Russian government, um, and that they the which that, that doesn't make sense. Well, that's an actual piece of history. Like I said, I don't want this to turn into a half-ass history podcast. But the Cossacks were these they were, they were kind of romanticized in Russian culture. Like they lived out on the steppes, and they were trackers and hunters, and they were excellent horsemen and warriors, and uh, they were used kind of in a paramilitary capacity. And the Cossacks actually sided with, they wanted, they were anti-Bolshevik. So they fought against the Russians in Russia during the World Wars, and they actually sided with Germany. So when they surrendered to the British in Austria, the British promised them they would not uh, repatriate them back to Russia, which is exactly what they did. So that's the history behind Trevelyan's parents, which they kind of explained with enough detail for the movie, for, for it to be like, well, this guy's mad at England, but for some reason England used him as a special agent because they thought they could control him or they thought that he had skills that they could use. So that that's where that all comes from. Oh, well, that's pretty special. The only thing that didn't make sense was that Sean Bean was probably like 35 when he filmed this movie, so uh, that doesn't make much sense. Well, if you if you get into the whole Bond continuity thing, I mean, yeah, you're going to you're going to treat yourself to a small stroke if you think too hard about it. Because, you know, you, you've got, you know, I mean, when we were talking about how the Bond movies rank and they have a website that just that just looks at their box office takes according to inflation because they've been making these movies since 1962. So it's. Yeah. And so much has changed. And that was part of the narrative with this movie that was so interesting is that. But, but the, there was such a long gap between when License to Kill came out. And when Goldeneye came out, the Cold War was over. So they had to address that. There was a lot of meta-commentary in the movie. Not just about the political circumstances that would surround a British spy, but kind of James Bond himself. Like all the kind of... I guess you could say they're kind of ham-handed lines, like when Moneypenny says it's sexual harassment, the way he talks to her. And they make the new M a woman, and she's... You know, talking about how she's an accountant, but she's not afraid to send somebody out to die, you know, to establish her her toughness, even though she's a woman, you know, that kind of stuff that that was all there. But um, 
How about the uh, most random mini driver cameo in this movie? Oh, yeah. My favorite part about reading about that was they, they, it was like she only got paid $5,000 for this cameo. It's like, oh, my God, the horror of it. She was on set for probably two days, and she didn't even have to actually sing. That wasn't her voice, and they paid her five grand. But in Hollywood, that's just nothing. That's like what you pay your nanny for a week or whatever. <laughs> Not to get into the class <laughs> struggle rhetoric but i mean it was just like no she, yeah. she only got paid five thousand dollars it's like okay that's what some people take home in 10 or 12 weeks yeah right uh, yeah and especially you know in 1995 too man Jeez. yeah yeah might, um, as, might as well have been 10 right. grand right and then you have uh you know robbie coltrane there is uh, valentin valentine <laughs> um uh, so quotable which, yeah yeah um uh, what uh what, what's your so I'm just gonna you know rifle through those minor characters there. What was your take on him? Because they brought him back in the world is not enough also, and he I believe he dies in that movie. Yeah, he kind of he kind of does this uh, betrayal of Bond and then ends up ends up dying well trying to make good yeah. on it, which is kind of an interesting. It's like the double cross. Then you try to reverse the double cross. It costs you your life. Uh, I really enjoyed his performance, even though uh, I mean my my. Uh, when I was in college, all the guys I was in the dorm with, like, we all liked that movie, and we would all, like, for some reason, we always liked saying to each other, I hear the new M is a lady. We always liked saying that to each other. I don't know why. It was just so stupid. <laughs> but, um, yeah, he would, he was really good. I, uh, I I have no complaints with him, and bringing him back as a recurring character was interesting. Um, what yeah. about you? Yeah, I, I like him. I thought he was good. Um, and then obviously he, he had probably a bigger claim to fame when he slapped the beard on and, and did the whole Harry Potter thing as Hagrid. But um, yeah, I, I thought he did a good job. Um, I, I, I felt like his accent was one of the more believable ones. And, you know, this is me as an American rating a Russian accent. But um, yeah, I thought it was an interesting character. I kind of like those people who make the movie almost feel like a video game where you're like, now you got to go in and talk to this guy and you got to find out this info so that you can go here. Um, it, those little like nooks and pockets that this movie takes you on gives the movie a fullness and a rewatchability to me. Cause you're not stagnant. Uh, and I like that, you know, even, even just that having that value in itself, regardless of its impact on the plot or where it steers bond to, uh, it clean, 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 you know, cleans my palate as I'm watching the movie, and it's um, very minor scene, very small scene, but it it delivers that for me. So, uh, I yeah, I mean, one of my favorite one-liners in the movie. I know you you were bashing the writing a little bit, but one of my favorite one-liners, just because of how casual it was, is when you brought up the mini driver cameo. She's doing that horrible intentionally horrible uh, performance of "Stand by Your Man," and Bond sits down. He just goes, "Who's strangling the cat?" <laughs> <laughs> and Valentine's just like cat, and then he looks and he, and she's singing, and he's like, "Arena, take a hike," and she just you know, gives him the finger and like just gets off the stage with the with her girls that are all dressed as cow cowgirls. Uh, that was a good little scene, I thought. I also thought it was funny when he said, "I I I, uh, I do enjoy when a woman pulls rank." That was earlier in the casino, but that was a, you know, but yeah, that I think my favorite one-liner was definitely just him, just because it wasn't as forced as some of the ones you mentioned, or it was just like, I still say that to this yeah. day if somebody's singing really badly. <laughs> it had a, it had a real effect on me, so. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if I have a favorite one-liner. Um, 
I, I think my, my favorite one-liner would have to be when Xenia dies and Bond goes, she always did like a good squeeze. Okay. <laughs> very, yeah. Very out of those. Um, yeah, I, I, that was a good one for sure. Um, all right. So um, do you want to get into uh, like, we'll, we'll um, take a detour and then get back into the, the movie and the meat and potatoes of the movie, but kind of do a little detour here and talk about, um, you know, marketing stuff because I definitely have stuff I remember, and then also you know the video game and and those types of tie-ins. Yeah, go ahead, man. Uh, take take it away. I'll see what I can contribute. All right. So <laughs> yeah, before we get into the video game, I remember the BMW Z3 being a very big deal when that came out. Um, the two-seater convertible. Um, you know. Every, everyone wanted their parents to have one because it was like one of those bond cars that people could actually buy on a, uh, I'd say, quote, reasonable uh, price range as opposed to, you know, Aston Martins and other bond uh, cars mm-hmm. from, from the old movies. Right. But of course, only the rich kids in town had one. And we happened to have a kid up the block whose parents had one in the same exact blue color as Goldeneye. And I was like, oh, man, that's the bond car. Uh, so I remember that being a big deal, and they really hammered the the marketing of that. Like, you can own James Bond's car. Do you remember that at all? Of course, yeah. And it was um, the research I the, the the things I saw when I was reading up for the movie was this was like when you, anytime you watch a movie and there's a really obnoxious product placement, they're basically chasing what happened in this movie because they made the BMW Z3 the Bond car. They paid it cost uh, BMW three million dollars. They sold $240 million worth of cars. They came out with a 007 version of the car that sold out in a day. So, I mean, that's what they're chasing. What was the 007 version? I, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't get that deep into it. I just saw that they had, a, they had a version that was directly tied to the movie, and it was the pre-orders were, were all, all filled up in a day. The center console had, like, a champagne cooler and a box of condoms? Well, that well, that was the yeah maybe. I mean, if you wanted to take it from that earlier scene of that vintage Aston Martin, I don't know what the, I mean. The <laughs> you're talking about an eighty to one return on investment, and we're talking about all the things we don't want this to be. It's not going to be a half-ass history lesson. It's not going to be a half-ass business class. But I just thought that I was like, oh, okay, that's why I have to see all these really like that. That's why. Every time a specific car or a specific brand wants to be in a movie, they have to pay because it can have this kind of payoff. Yeah. If, and I, I also remember the commercials for the of the Omega watches that, you know, that Bond and Alec had the same oh, watch. It's okay. like, oh, new model. And then it had the laser in it. And of course, the timer for the remote mines, which is, you know, very crucial in the in the Bond game. Um, as far as actual marketing goes, besides the game, I mean, there weren't toys, I don't think. They did some comic book, but I'll be honest, those things were never really that far on my radar. Um, they did do a novelization, but surprisingly, I didn't read it. Um, this was the first Bond movie not to use Ian Fleming material as a source, though. It was the first complete, well, sort of completely original Bond movie. Every other one before this was either was based either in part or totally on uh, Ian Fleming novel. Oh wow! Yeah, so I, I, I wanted to get that in a lot earlier, but I just didn't get around to it. So I I apologize for that. It was this one of those scripts that was a script for an action movie, and they're like, "We're gonna make this 
a Bond movie? Like, was this like uh, you're you know a stereotypical? Uh, we got a Mel Gibson vehicle here, or a Bruce Willis uh, action movie, or or, or Stallone's going to be making this movie about this thing, and like, no, uh, we'll buy, MGM, we'll buy that, and we'll make that our next Bond script. I don't, I don't think that was the case. Unfortunately, I think it was it was developed from the onset to be a Bond movie. It, it, back in 1990, when um, when Timothy Dalton was still involved, it was going to be called The Property of a Lady, which is probably the title of a short story from one of the Bond novels. But uh, it just got, they had to make so many changes and they changed out writers. And then, like I mentioned, True Lies came out a year before it. And then it had all the a lot of the set pieces and there was enough in common with it that it gets mentioned all the time. But in, and for whatever research I did, which, you know, if you do more than one Google search these days, it's like you're, you're, you're kind of uh, detail obsessed, but I couldn't find anything. The, the closest thing I found was that it was a working draft and it'll probably never see the light of day. But um, as far as I know, it was always intended to be a Bond movie, but they had to change a lot of things, and there were a lot of writers. It passed hand, it passed between a lot of writers' hands. So, sorry if that doesn't agree okay. with the point you were trying to make, but okay. as far as I know, that's that's how it is. Honestly, it was just I was just curious because I know that happens sometimes. Um, I know that was the case with um, Die Hard with a Vengeance was something else, and they just made it a script for Die Hard or whatever. But yeah. But the uh, the video the video game Goldeneye. Um, I know you know we played it back in the day. Once we became friends, um, it had been out for a while. Then I was never very good at it. I beat it on whatever the second or third level is. Um, it took me a long time to beat the game story mode wise. And then multiplayer is obviously the biggest talk of the town because that's where people really just kept playing it and 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 you know all down the line with uh, the facility in the remote mines uh, proximity mines at the <laughs> at the spawning points and uh, all the tricks and stuff like that so um what's your what what are your fondest memories of of the video game and what what what's your take on it in the grand scheme of the culture of video games and its impact well i i mentioned how goldeneye really is an important it, an important movie for the Bond franchise in a couple different ways. Um, as far as the video game goes, I, I wouldn't have even thought of about, of about buying a, a Nintendo 64 until this came out. Like, I, I remember playing this in department stores when the demos were set up. And then I would play it at friends' houses, and then more and more friends would, would get it. And to this day, I mean, there weren't a lot of Nintendo 64 games that I really enjoyed or kept. Um, I really like the one Legend of Zelda they did, the Ocarina of Time, uh, but Goldeneye is, and then even the follow-up they did, the spiritual follow-up Rare did, uh, which was called Perfect Dark. It wasn't a, it wasn't a Bond game, but it used a lot of the same shooting mechanics. Right. And it, that was right. another really addictive game, and it had the same awesome multiplayer that was kind of taken up a notch with some of the gadgets you could use and secondary weapons but oh yeah i mean um i remember going to uh one of our mutual friends houses and he had golden eyes set up and there were like 10 or 12 kids we went to school with and we were just working a four-man rotation and i remember i won a lot <laughs> more than i expected because first person shooters were not very popular back then um 
they weren't as they certainly weren't what they are now. I remember playing Wolfenstein on the computer, uh, but I don't really remember. I, and then I played there was another one called Rise of the Triad that I don't know if anyone remembers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't remember that one. I remember Wolfenstein. I don't remember uh, Rise of the Triad. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was a huge part. Of, I mean, I we got a sixty four in my house because of this game. And we didn't buy that many other new games for it. And I hung on to it for, for years and years. And then I kind of lost track of it, which is kind of a regret because my two favorite games for it were this and Mario Golf. But <laughs> um, Mario Golf. And also, I loved the... Uh, now we're really tangenting here, but that's all right. Uh, the Revenge, WCW, NWO Revenge. Oh, God. How could I forget about that? Um yeah, we, we this is a movie podcast, <laughs> but anytime we could talk about video games, I will take it. I, I but uh, yeah, what what's your impressions of? I, I hope I didn't say too much. Like, what do you think of Goldeneye? What were your experiences with it? And then, what do you think uh, its its kind of impact was? Well, there's this there's this meme that I've seen a few times, and it says it's um, summer of. 1998 um it's a it's a friday night your friends are over you're eating pizza and you're playing multiplayer goldeneye this is the greatest your life will ever be and you didn't know it at the time (laughs) and you know it, it so and why i say why i bring up that meme is not because i agree with that but it does take you back to pre bills pre stresses and you know mortgage or rent and you know all that stuff of being a teenager and like your biggest problem was your dickhead friend throwing a proximity mine above the toilet in the facility (laughs) uh but i do remember um good times doing the multiplayer uh and um you know who's going to be odd job because that's the cheat because he can't get hit by the eye line you have to you have to do the aim down to get him uh, doing the Neil creep around, doing the AB remote mind trigger, uh, so you don't have to change to the watch. Like just all the little fun things that you would do with your friends and try to one up each other. And where am I going to place those mines? And that's what yeah, it just it just brings back good memories. Um, and it it's funny because when I think about it, I'm like, when it comes to Goldeneye, which I consider one of my favorite Bond movies. Do I like the movie more because of the game? Like I, because I played, like I said, I played the game first. Then I went and rented the VHS and watched the movie after. And I remember, so I watched the movie via the prism of the game, which is maybe very strange. And it doesn't obviously doesn't happen very often where a movie has a game that may be what some would say bigger than the movie itself. And so I kind of got backdoored, introduced into the bond fandom that way. Because I'm the same way as you. Since then, I've gone to see every Bond movie in the theaters, even the, through the Daniel Craig movies. Uh, so it's just it's just such an important part uh, of my entry to this thing, and you know, a big part of the reason why you know I was I wanted to pick this movie to, to podcast about is because I loved it so much because of the game. I think, and I do love the movie. I do. So I don't want to I want to make that clear. But it's like the game. Uh, backdoored me into the introduced me to the movie that that's really interesting i mean i i definitely saw the movie like i explained before i definitely saw the movie before the game came out but i did not i didn't get to see it in the theater because 
it just wasn't on my radar, but I do remember kids at school talking about it, like how it was a really good movie. And then, I mean, it, mm. it got me into the whole franchise. And then as you, as you were saying, it's like, yeah, you would get together with, I mean, my, I would play it with my brothers and, you know, my friends would come over and we would just, you'd, you'd be up all night playing it. And nobody cared. Like you would just be, you, not just the, yeah. the multiplayer was awesome. The story mode was really good too. And it actually, as, as much as a video game can follow the story pretty well. I mean, it did make entire levels out of places that were in the movie for five seconds. Like there's a train depot level where that's the level right before you get on the missile train. <laughs> it's this really long, complicated level on the higher difficulties, but it was it was like a 10 second scene of the movie. It was just where Bond saw them getting on the train and then he's like creeping up in the tank, which was kind of a funny um kind of a funny sight gag he's trying to be stealthy he's driving around in this old russian tank or e- even even the, the damn the damn level was hard way harder in the game than it was for him in the movie in the movie he's the only one there and he just runs to the edge and jumps off where in the game you're at you have to get through each stop and the guys are in the rooms and you have to open the gates and all that <laughs> well there yeah but there was a scene that they cut from the movie where he kills a ton of guys before he does that stunt Oh, well, there you go. And it was, right. I think so, it was in go. the novelization, but they didn't include, it was in the script and they either didn't shoot it or it was cut from the movie. I think, I think they never ended up shooting it, but there was a scene where he was supposed to kill a bunch of dudes before he does that awesome stunt off the dam. They made a book out of that? <laughs> I'm going to say that on every goddamn episode. Until we, Are you going to do that until we do Airheads or are you still going to do it after? Uh... Uh, if if you get sick of it, I'll stop doing it. Uh, so that's what we'll do. That's what we'll do. But um, yeah, <laughs> when you're like, dude, just stop with that we, bit. We get it, man. <laughs> Unbelievable! What a dick! <laughs> this this guy. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, but the the game the game and the movie, I think the Bond franchise owes a lot to the two. The, to, to, but the movie primarily, but the game also for creating, I think, this whole... Because if you look at the popularity of the movies, even though they were... Fu- I think most of the... All the other Brosnan movies were inferior to this one. They all made more money than this one, except uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. And then all the all the uh, Daniel Craig movies, which are kind of... I mean, I, I enjoy them, but they really are more getting away from the Bond aspect of it, they're more like kind of repackaged Bourne movies. They're more grounded and realistic, and they include some aspects of the Bond mythos. But, I mean, those are the ones that are a license to print money. I don't think one of those is made under $600 million. Even Quantum of Solace, yeah. which wasn't... Which I think was kind of underrated, but it wasn't as well-received as the other ones he was in. And I thought Spectre was a total mess. Right. I thought Spectre was a complete mess. But um, I didn't see Spectre yet. Oh wow! Okay, so so you so you you fibbed a little bit. You haven't seen all the Bond movies in the theater. You didn't see Spectre. You saw all the other ones up to, yeah, up to that point. Um, yeah, I didn't see Spectre. I don't know why I missed it, but like, when did what year did that come out? Like twenty sixteen? Um, I think so. I think I, I think it was uh, twenty fifteen. Yeah, I had to look. That yeah, because I, I remember seeing all the other ones in the theater. So yeah, I did. Slip so, yeah, sorry to catch you in a white lie there, or a mistake, or whatever the case might be. I did. I, I like forgot that that. Yeah, but I don't think I lied. I think I forgot that that was a thing. I forgot that movie. 
Yeah, it was it was okay up to a point, but the there was this one scene where Bond is running and he shoots down a helicopter with his thirty two caliber pistol, which I just I hate to be that guy, but it's like, come on, man. Like, let's yeah. you're gonna talk about hitting the engine of a helicopter that way, let alone with that puny little gun, you're gonna damn I, I just that was one of the many things wrong with it, but they had uh, they had Christoph Waltz in it, which you know was pretty good. But they uh, they tried to pass him off like he was a new character, not an old uh, and battle tested villain, and nobody bought it, like not not one person. So um, that was kind of kind of a <laughs> letdown. But in any event, not to talk about the Daniel Craig movies, I I, I would really like to do Casino Royale because. I I think that's a great great Bond movie, even though I did. Well, Mike, you know what's good, Mike, is that there's an endless supply of movies, so we we have a lot of we have a lot of content to get into. <laughs> we do. Um, yeah. Um, I was gonna say you mentioning helicopters made me think of, um, the uh, when when they're trapped, uh, him and Natalia are trapped uh, after uh, the reveal of uh, 006. And he kind of headbutts the ejection, uh, of course, with one second to spare, as in every action movie. Um, which, you know, you and I had to get into, because we talked about this in Batman, about how the 10 minutes were the 10 minutes. We have to get into the trope of movies where the clock is just never, it, the clock is always very slow. And, you know a 10 minute scene in a movie, a three minute timer doesn't go off yet. And that sort of thing. But in any event, he, he headbutts the ejection seat and they go up in the air and damn it. If that's not the exact same shot as uh die hard two, when he uh, ejects and uh, <laughs> right with the explosion below him, like it really made me think of it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty close. I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but now that you mention it, it, it does uh, kind of set off the alarm bells for that except they they had the shot from above and they showed him come he was screaming he's like ah grabbing the seatbelt um right yeah no. yeah the the interesting thing about the bond movies too um <clears throat> at least with golden eyes i feel like the bond movies have this kind of boom and bust cycle that maybe you can equate to um like like tv shows for example like when when the first Sean Connor, Connery movie was, that was our first dose of James Bond. And then the next couple movies around it were, they improved and they, they found ways to make the action more exciting. Like in From Russia With Love, which is another one of my favorite Bond movies, this movie actually took a lot of cues from that for some of the fight scenes, especially the fight scene between uh, Bond and Trevelyan at the end of the movie. But... um I, I, with Bond, I, I, and I'll, and I'll I, I have to admit this straight up. I am not a big Roger Moore Bond guy. I've seen some of the movies. Neither I am I. Yeah, I haven't seen them all. I actually knew a dude who said without any shame or apology that Roger Moore was his favorite Bond. And it was like, I don't agree with that opinion, but I enjoy it. And that the fact that a guy is that confident that Roger Moore was the best Bond. I just think that's... That's hysterical. <laughs> and there's no reason to jump all over the guy for it because it's really easy to say Connery was the best Bond or Daniel Craig was the best Bond or 
um, even Pierce Brosnan was the best Bond. But like the, the, a lot of people will, won't say. Well, Roger the the Bond snob take is is Sean Connery's the best Bond. That and it's hard to say that without sounding like a Bond snob. Right. No, for sure. Pierce Brosnan was only Bond for seven years. Yeah, four and movies. Daniel Craig has been Bond for fifteen years. Also four movies. And it just about to be five. It feels. Yeah, it, it it feels like Brosnan's time as Bond was longer than it was, and maybe that's just because what our ages were then and time was bigger or longer to us then. But that seven years feels like it was longer than that. I don't know how else to explain that. No, I, 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 I kind of agree with you. I, I think one thing we're dealing with with uh, the Daniel Craig movies is that I mentioned that the, er, very early on that there was a six-year gap between this mo- between Goldeneye and License to Kill, its predecessor. We're already at five years because yeah. even if things had went to plan before the the bug made its way around the world and devastated movie theaters, um, No Time to Die was supposed to come out. I think it was supposed to come out sometime this year, so it still would have been close to a five-year gap. But when it came out, but now they're talking about possibly doing a really big on-demand deal. I don't know what's going to happen with that, but that's—I guess—that's a topic better left for another time. But the point is, yeah, Daniel Craig has been Bond since 2006, but he's—he hasn't made any more movies than Pierce Brosnan has. He—he'll make one more once No Time to Die comes out. Him and Brosnan's last Bond movies have "die" in the title. I know it doesn't mean anything, but it's funny. Yeah, it's a, and then Dalton's was licensed to kill, and then uh, Roger Moore's was View to a Kill. And then if you go off the actual sanctioned movies, uh, uh, Connery's was uh, Diamonds Are Forever, I think. Then they did the, they did Never Say Never Again, which was basically just a, another studio doing some... It was some legal thing that I didn't... I wasn't expecting to talk about it, so I didn't research it. I don't know off the top of my head, but they, um, it was basically just a re repurposed Thunderball. And I remember they had a villainess in it named Fatima blush. And she really couldn't get past the fact she wanted James Bond to admit that she was the best sex he ever had. That was her thing. (laughs) She wouldn't kill him unless he admitted that. And then (laughs) that he ended up getting the best of her anyway. But um, <laughs> anyway, I, I didn't mean to get too far off the beaten path with that. I, I knew some of this was going to happen because it's a bond and there's just such a wide. I mean, oh, you've yeah. got such an incredible catalog of material to talk about. And the past kind of informs what happens in the future movies to a certain extent. Like even in this movie, he's driving the, the Goldfinger car. In the beginning of the movie, he's driving the uh, the Aston Martin DB5, yeah, um, with the with the bottle of chilled Bollinger in the console to seduce his uh, field yes. inspector or, or the, the chick doing his uh, review, right? Um, I so what what's your t- what's your take on the story of the movie? Because um, for me, it the plot of this movie takes a very far backseat to everything else going on in the movie. It's not that important to me. Like even look, I watched it just the other day and I'm just like, so they stole this thing for 
this satellite so that it can shoot missiles and uh he wants to you know steal money and and and, and you know pay back his his country for he feels like it betrayed basically the, the plot to me sounded like a hybrid even though this came out before the rock like trevelyan was like hans gruber mixed with general hummel from the rock like in terms of his intentions like he he, he was a grandiose theatric over glorified bank robber but also he at the same time he felt betrayed by his country that he served and and that sort of thing yeah and it's really interesting that you mentioned that because he it was like they really they really skipped glossed over the part that was really hard it was he stole this satellite and that was how he's going to cover his tracks but then he said oh i'm going to break into the central bank of London, all these banks and i'm going to steal all the money it's like that seems like it's the much harder part yeah than stealing a satellite and then hitting London with with an electromagnetic pulse so all the computers are destroyed so that they can't track you down. Um, so I guess the I guess the whole historical context about him being a Russian that was betrayed by the government that was kind of lost on you is what you're saying. Yeah. So uh, I you know I have I I don't have you know ADHD so I'm not trying to minimize you know that by saying this um but i say it in a casual way i i my attention gets lost sometimes on intricate plot details for a movie like this that i watch it to almost sometimes shut my brain off and go for the ride um so and i'm okay with letting the finer details of the bad guys um intentions and the movie's deeper plot whiz by me like i sometimes just like do that and 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 i'm okay with that if I want to dial in, I'll dial in. But for this movie, like uh, it's very surfacey to me, and what I take from the movie is more of the adventure Bond goes on along the way to get to the end game. Um, and like I say, those little scenes and those little clever moments, and him, you know, outwitting people or beating up henchmen, and you know, uh, the the classic, you know, club scene, and you know, all the all the. Uh, classic elements that that are in bond movies uh more so than the overall plot like i i, I think i'm thinking about them now and, and just like all the movies like the uh, tomorrow never dies is like a media guy and the world is not enough about this guy who has this thing in his brain and he can't feel pain and it's like the 2002's die another day this guy like made himself a white man and i'm just like well, i don't care just give me the cool bond scenes and um and that's me so uh, but you sound like you're more you were more dialed in to the story um, whether you liked it or not I don't know but you, you have a firmer grasp or, or you engaged yourself more into well it. And, and and part of that I think is because we we seem to take like when I see a film and I enjoy it even if I don't like it uh, I'll just I'll read the trivia about it I'll, I'll I'll read a lot of stuff to try to put some things in context if it if it has um, if it has source material, like if it came from a comic or if it came from a novel, I cert- I don't know. I won't very often read those, but I'll read the information about those to see what the differences are. And that's just that's just some weird thing I do. It's just how I enjoy spending my time. I like reading about pop culture and reading about movies and stories and things like that. So I think if anything, it comes from that. And I do have kind of an interest in historical stuff and 
you know, specifically Russian stuff because I, I studied it some when I was in college. So I have some kind of a background in it, but that doesn't mean I'm an expert by any stretch. But this is not going to be a half-assed history lesson. It is not. So, yeah. It is not. Thank you for reiterating that point. <laughs> very, very, I very much appreciate you keeping this train on the tracks, but um, I, I enjoyed the Speaking story. of trains on the tracks, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, I think for you, it seems like the, the, but you're right. I mean, the it really did gloss over. It's like, oh, I'm just going to steal this money, and then I hit London with a satellite because I hate the English government because they let me work for them. But um, not because they let me work for them, but I, I worked for them. That's how I gathered all these skills to perpe- to perpetuate this revenge. But if you look, maybe to you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think maybe to you it was just more about these two guys who were brothers in arms, and it was about their what happened when they found each other not not so much it's like like you couldn't be bothered with the stuff about the you know the Lien's cossacks and and you're right they did really gloss over some important details about how they're gonna do this crime but i think if they got too bogged down in that it would have turned into oceans 11 five years before it's time yeah um yeah, uh, you you're right. You're absolutely right. You you yeah, I think you put how I feel about it better than I did, and you you just made me realize that a lot of times to me, and I've heard um, my favorite screenwriter is Lawrence Kasdan, um, and you know why? Obviously, he wrote you know Empire Strikes Back <laughs> and and uh, a bunch of other a bunch of other movies too, though. Um, uh, but he he had said something, not to take his exact words, but that plot is overrated. Um, and what's most important in your movies is, uh, selling your characters to your audience. And I think that's where I tend to focus is, um, do I believe these characters exist? Do I believe these relationships are real? Do I believe this hatred is real? Um, so you're right. I see this movie as the, um, two of them on that journey, uh, from brotherhood to uh, um, betrayal and uh, the resolution at the end and payback. Um, and I am a big bookend guy. Uh, I love the the tight, put a bow on it and wrap it nicely at the end sort of uh, thing. And, you know, they do that very well with that quote and the whole, you know, for England, James, for England, Alec. And at the end, for England, James, no, for me. Uh and that's one of those moments in this movie where he could have, they could have hit you with some like, uh, you know, enjoy your, enjoy your trip or like one of those stupid Arnold one-liners, but they <laughs> didn't. And they, they, you know, that was a bad example, but you know exactly what I'm saying. No, I got um, it. But they didn't. And they, 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 they gave you the what you what we needed which was that that weight and almost like bonds uh closure um and a very very personal moment a very like serious acting uh because pierce brosnan's a good actor and um you you see it on his face and uh all the way back to trevelyan too as he's hanging there knowing that it's over um they they could have cheeseballed it and they didn't and i i think that moment was like one of those pivotal moments. Is this movie going to go end this way or be remembered this way? And because they took the serious path there with the killing of uh, Trevelyan and that final release uh, of him, 
I it it gave the movie more legitimacy in for me. Yeah, yeah, that that's a great point. It's um it's interesting with this movie because I, and I keep saying that I need to find a new segue, but um one of but there there are many interesting things about this movie, and one of them is that I read that they were going to bring they wanted to bring Natalia back as a recurring character. Um to help bond out with tech stuff because as the movies entered a new age, they thought they might need a new character for that. And then I guess they thought better of it. She kind of fell off the face of the earth. That actress, she was in rain of fire, which I thought was pretty underrated, but, um, and then they were good. They, they actually, I have to look this up, but I could have sworn. I saw something that said they were going to bring Trevelyan back as what a charcoal briquette, a wheelchair. Like what were they going to do with that? <laughs> I'm assuming that if they were going to bring him back, that like they would not have had that happen to him where he falls a hundred or so feet and then a flaming satellite dish falls on him. But um, they said into his eyeball. <laughs> they, yeah, they did film it that way. Didn't they? Um, and you talk about the, uh, the lasting legacy of this movie too. Martin Campbell was actually the guy who he kind of brought back they brought him back to do Casino Royale because I don't know if I made this point before, but I was trying to get to it. But I feel like the Bond movies kind of they're, they're, they they reach a point where they get too big and they get too outlandish, and then they have to reset. I feel and if we might, I don't know if that came through before, but I felt like it happened with the Sean Connery movies. And then the Roger Moore movies, which I was never really a big fan of to begin with, and I'm not very familiar with, so maybe that doesn't make me the best Bond fan, considering he was in the most movies. Well, didn't they go to the fucking moon? Yeah, it was Moonraker. Yeah, they that was the that was the most. Yeah. I think that was the most successful one he was in. Um, no, Live and Let Wait, Die. Did was. it come out like during the Apollo moon missions? Did it come out in, like 1975? 79. Moonraker came out. Um. No, his most successful movie was Living. I, I I haven't even seen Moonraker, but but I bet it's a giant. I bet it's a giant piece of crap. I, I was I was watching something and they were referencing Moonraker. How I think Sean Connery said in an interview that he didn't like Moonraker, and it wasn't because of Roger Moore. He said the effects were starting to take away from the actor's performance. But then Roger Moore also made a crack about how, what he brings to the franchise as his own hair. So, <laughs> keeping it real classy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I feel like that kind of happened with the... That definitely happened with the Pierce Brosnan movies. Um, you know, they just got bigger and more out of control. And it didn't affect the box office grosses very much, but I think it affected... Because the budgets went up, so I think they were less successful. They were less successful in terms of profit, but they made more money. And then the critics liked them less. Well... Die Another Day was not a good movie, but they really hammered home. It's the 20th Bond movie or whatever it was. I think, yeah. Um, or yep. 25th Bond movie. It was the 20th. And they put a reference, they put a reference, an Easter egg from every Bond movie in it. And that was a big thing. Um, and Halle Berry was white hot at the time in like 2001, <laughs> 2002. So she, dude, she, I mean, literal, I mean, like, obviously from her, her looks, but also like just, she was like right out of uh, off of X Men, and she was just about, you know right before Monsters Ball, and she was being cast in everything, and everyone loved Halle Berry, and like that was like her time, like two thousand one, two thousand two. So I think that um, boosted that movie. 
But it's funny, everything that, that boosted that movie um, was in spite of itself, because like you say, and to round out back to your point about um, how Goldeneye started his run and it ended with Dying of the Days, like that surf scene and that stuff where that it, they're just like, we have to stop. But um, that's what's good about Goldeneye is that you don't, you don't have that because it's the beginning of the run. Right. <laughs> Right, and then it, the, I mean the same thing happened to the Daniel Craig movies. Like I, I, I feel like the first three movies were good, and then Spectre is starting to come off the rails a little bit. And without getting too deep into this, what I'm hearing about No Time to Die and what I've seen in the trailers, I don't really think that's going to be a very good movie. I just don't think I don't think I'm going to enjoy it. And with everything that's going on, I don't know how they're going to recoup the insane amount of money that they've been, that they've been putting into these into these films because. I don't know if you know anything. Of, I, I'm sure you do, but how Hollywood, the Hollywood math aspect of a budget is that a, mo- a movie doesn't make back all the money it takes in at the box office. Some of that gets kicked back to the distributors. So if, if the box office receipts say that a movie made $600 million, it really made $300 million or, or $350 million. It depends on how the agreement was drawn up. And then you also have the the black box that is the marketing budget because you never really know how much that how big that number could be. But with this movie, I think what they're saying with with no time to die, it's going to have to make six. They the deal they tried to make with the various streaming services was they wanted six hundred million dollars for it, and none of them were willing to pay it. So that might have been that's probably their break even point with maybe a maybe a little bit of profit. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't really. I think, and then Daniel Craig's going to leave the franchise, and who knows where it's going to be after that. True, true. Um, in terms of um, Goldeneye, I do want to ask you what your favorite scene is. But I, and, and let me know if you agree with this or disagree with this. I feel like maybe more so than the average movie. I feel like supporting characters in Bond movies are very important to it being enjoyable. Um, what it like what what's your take on the supporting cast in this movie like you know Alan Cummings as Boris uh Natalia Xenia um uh even the new M with Judy Dench um uh, all down the line so uh any takeaways there or or favorite uh side characters or things that worked for you didn't work for you Well I liked um you you brought up uh, Zakowski Valentin Dmitrovich Zakowski um He's a, he's, he was great. You always know, you, you know what, you know what's funny about you, Mike? You always know all the, like, the full names, <laughs> and you make sure that I know that you know it. I don't, well, that was actually a line in the movie, so that's not that, like, Vaughn says it to Wade when they meet up at the airport. He's like, he's like, tough, tough, mother. I know, I know. Limp. He's like, yeah, and in, in case no one knew, or you didn't know, that Dimitrovich thing, that's a patronymic. That that means his dad's name was Dimitri. That's that's where that comes from. But I really enjoyed his character and the history that they... Again, they, they kind of portrayed that history in a really short period of time. Um, and kind of the contempt that kind of gave way to mutual interest. I thought Natalia was kind of shrill at the beginning, but um, she kind of settles in. Um, I like the scene I really liked was, and this is interesting. You brought this up because the scene where they're on the beach and that happens after they meet up with Wade and they're talking about their plan of attack for how they're going to go look for the satellite dish. Doesn't it seem like that should have happened before that? Like the scene where they're on the (laughs) beach and they're talking and then 
So in the scene where she's talking with him and Wade about going up and looking for the satellite dish, it seems like she's really curt with him and really cold. And I think it would have been better if they had that scene on the beach and they didn't have sex. And then they show up and she's all mad at him. And it's like, yeah, it's because she asked him why he's so cold. And he's like, it's what keeps me alive. And she's like, no, it's what keeps you alone. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, um, <laughs> Boris was just a little over the top. And Alan Cummings' serviceable Russian accent aside, he was just a, you know, they, they did that insufferable thing where, where you're really good with computers. So you type really fast with one hand. Like, that's just kind of, but it did serve. <laughs> It did, it did serve the plot well where he's just like clacking away at his computer with one hand and then he's twirling that pen around, which uh, you referenced earlier. Right. I like Boris, so uh, I'm going to disagree with you there because I liked his um, – I liked how he's like this little turdy pervert and he like has like these dirty <laughs> jokes as his passwords and stuff like – they're right in front of you, but you can't take them with you. Or they're, they're right in front of you, and they open very large doors. Yeah, they do. Knockers. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly do. Um, one one guy we haven't mentioned a whole lot is uh, Jack Wade. I mentioned him just now because of the scenes he was in. But one of the things I thought uh, I, I stumbled across reading for this movie was, if you watch it again recently, I don't know if you're going to have time, but if you watch it again sometime in the near future, you'll notice in almost every scene, like the first time he meets Bond, he asks him if he likes gardening. And then he'll show up at a scene and he'll he'll make an, a comment about like a tree or a plant that's around. And I guess that was supposed to be a bigger part of the script. He was, They were going to make a bigger deal about how he was really, really into gardening, but they, they left it on the cutting room floor. But that was kind of an interesting note for that character, too. Uh, I didn't notice it until I read it, and then I'm watching the movie, and then like he sh- at the end where he shows up with all the marine, or he shows up with all the marines, and he says, "Oh, there's some kind of tree here," and I'm like, "Oh, that's what they're talking about." He's like obsessed with gardening, but yeah, Valentine was definitely my favorite supporting character besides Trevelyan, which, um, as I said, I still think he's one of the best villains based just on pedigree. I mean, Sean Bean's performance was good. I don't think I liked it as much as you did. In fact, I thought he was being really campy where he was in the train and he like he was like mugging Natalia and like forcing her to kiss him and stuff. It was like, what what purpose does this serve? Like you're this under the radar crime boss and you've been leading this double life your entire life and but you can't stop throwing yourself at this Russian computer programmer who's I, on the train. I think it's um that jealousy thing. Um and he needs to prove that he's better than James Bond in everything. Huh. Okay. Uh, so he see he sees that he assumes that Bond uh has been with her. So he's like, I need to show that I can also be with her. I can get her too. Um you know it's like when your neighbor you know, has a better lawn than you, and you like you, you try to like make your lawn look better, or like that that old just get bitter, petty jealousy thing. But I think in this in this type of movie where he's like the super villain and Bond's the super spy, everything gets elevated, and just like every aspect of um his, his hatred towards James Bond, a lot of it I believe has to do with insecurities and jealousy that Bond always kind of got the credit and the praise of things, and and he's the jilted ex operative and and i think so it was more of a um 
a proving point for him than, oh, I just I want to get some action real quick. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that. You're right. But it, it does feed into your criticism before about how there's just too much sexual innuendo. And this was the first Bond movie that had a quote-unquote explicit sex scene. Like, even though the Bond movies were always kind of, that was always a facet of them. It was like they kind of ratcheted it up a little bit in this one. It seemed, it seemed like overkill at some points, and I think that was one of them. But that's a, that's, a, that's a better way to look at it, though, I think. Kind of more of a sibling rivalry thing than, you know, just a general horniness. <laughs> yeah. So your your favorite scene's not when the uh, Admiral gets uh, squeezed to death? <laughs> no. No, it's not. Um, is that your favorite scene? <laughs> no, no. Um, what Do you have a favorite scene? In this um, movie? I, I said earlier, I don't want to like repeat myself too much, but uh, it was just the whole cradle sequence where Trevelyan goes after Bond for the last time and the way they use the score... That they used from the archive scene, they bring that back, and then just the okay, way, yeah. you know, they they yeah. go, they go kind of move for move, and then that's the final. I mean, that's that's the best scene in the movie for me. What about for you? I I would have to say so too. Um, and I think yeah, I think we kind of yeah, we talked about our favorite scenes without realizing we were like talking about them. I guess because of that, you know, that final moment that I said. Could make, could make or break the movie where they could have done the cheesy thing and they didn't and they did the the serious payoff um that has to be the top for me um i i think they could have done without showing the satellite fall on trevelyan to be like yeah we just want to make sure you know he's definitely dead uh yeah, I agree. The, the 800 foot fall onto concrete yeah <laughs> i mean you sh- they show him bleeding out of the mouth that's usually a sign of internal bleeding you know he's dead yeah, you could, they could have him turn his head and just that would be the end of it. But no, they, they had to do the satellite through the eyeball thing. Yeah, I, I, I do want to say one thing, and I, I know I've done a couple gun things, but one thing that bothered me was how his pistol went from holding 10 shots to 3 shots. Because <laughs> he, he's shooting at Bond with his pistol, and then he reloads. And then he, he Bond takes the gun from him, and he shoots him with it. And then he pops off another shot, and then, oh, a shot goes off when they're fighting. And then, which I think, I, I think that was intentional, but it kind of looked like it was an accident, and they just left it in. And then Bond's on the ladder, and then he tries to shoot him when the ladder falls, and then all of a sudden he's magically out of bullets. It was like, that, that, that kind of stuff bothers me. I, it probably doesn't <laughs> bother you, but it was like... I, that was one thing. It was like it was just like, come on, man! Like you, 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 you packed a spare clip and you only put three rounds in it. Like, like you've you've been a soldier your entire life. That makes no sense. I like that you point that out though, because I do miss that stuff a lot. And I I've heard recently, um, without getting too far into it, that they do a really great job of uh, continuity with that on the John Wick movies. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. The John Wick movie. The first two are incredible. The third one's a little goes a little off the off the rails, but yeah, it they would have been better off if they didn't show him reloading. I would have believed that he could get 13 shots out of one out of one pistol magazine. But and then the the AKs right. always had like the bottomless mags, especially when Bond had them. Yeah. Bond could fire yeah. like 90 hundred yeah. shots out of an AK-74 <laughs> and not break a sweat, and then he would just pick up a new yeah. one. And uh, it would have a fresh magazine, so he would be good to go. So, I mean, yeah, the action scenes, while I think they were pretty well developed, I mean, there were some things that were left that kind of left left things to be desired. But um, 
I mean, it wasn't stuff that other movies weren't doing, like in The Crow, which is a movie I really enjoy, but especially when I was younger. Uh, I haven't seen it in years, but I do remember, I saw it so many times when I was a kid, that the scene where he goes up into the, the club, the big meeting at the end, not the church, but the, the meeting before that, and he has a Beretta 9mm and a six-shot revolver, and he fires 40 shots out of those two guns. One holds 15 and one holds <laughs> six. <laughs> I don't ask me why. He's also a dead guy revived by a bird. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. we'll we'll believe that part of it but dude the clip come on (laughs) come on he's got 21 (laughs) rounds between those two guns maybe 22 not 40 the sexy rock star who's dead who happened to be sexier after he was dead i don't know how he did it damn it brandon lee oh oh man yeah mike one scene that um is just is ridiculous. And I know I made the joke about the, the motorcycle and the plane before, but the driving the tank down the street and doing a burnout with a tank and uh, uh, him spying on them and he, in, in the tank and they can't hear him or see him. He's like 40 feet next to them. Like that whole sequence is so stupid. That was one of the best sight gags I've ever seen. He's trying to be sneaky in a tank. I feel like that was comedy they left in. Was I, I think that was done intentionally. Like I was watching... <laughs> I was watching this movie uh, with my girlfriend and she'd never seen it. And she was like trying not to just say stupid stuff while the, the, cause she just hated it. She hated the tank scene. Like she couldn't get past it. She was just, she thought it was dumb and she laughed out loud a couple times. And I was like, I was like, you know, for nostalgia, I don't want to be laughing with you, but this doesn't play as well as it did before. And then I was remembering the level from the game and how much fun that <laughs> right. was, you know, bombing around in a tank and, no, nobody likes people making fun of things that they love. So I, 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 I get that. I yeah, get that. I, but I that know. Scene, but she has a point she because did, she it's did. ridiculous. She did have a point. <laughs> um, all right. So what about what's what's the best death in the movie? Oh, I mean, he. Th- this was the thing. Bond kills so many people in this movie. Like I said earlier, this had the highest body count. Of at least of people Bond killed. I mean, you're not talking about explosions and other stuff that the villain does, but he 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 wastes a lot of people. I I kind of liked um, he didn't kill him, but I just kind of liked where he was fighting Xenia, and then that one random goon comes out in a towel, and then he just hits him with a he hits him with that bucket, like he just turns and smacks him with that bucket, and then he <laughs> then he throws him over his shoulder, and he's like, no, 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 no more foreplay. Take yeah. She swears in Russian. Right. And, um, but as uh, yeah. deaths, I mean, there was just a lot of just random guys, just, just a lot of NPCs just getting shot and going down. Like a lot of dudes in uniform just getting shot and eating it. What about you? <laughs> I, I feel like I'm coming out. I'm drawing a blank on this one. Boris. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. I guess that is the one novelty death in the movie. Well, besides getting a, you know, having a satellite disc drop through your mouth or eye or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He just, he does his whole like catchphrase, his I'm invincible thing. And he puts his arms up and then he just gets frozen. And it's, it's ridiculous, but it's like, um, he, he thinks, he thinks he gets out of it because he survives and, and the explosions are over. And then he, he gets hit with that. It's almost like there's something, uh, like, satisfying about his death because like 
he's he's just like that type of character that you love to hate because you just kind of want to like punch him in the face and uh if he had gotten out of it i, I that would have really annoyed me so like for that moment when you're watching it the first time thinking he got out of it, you're like you gotta be kidding me now they're gonna like hire him and give him a job like leo dicaprio and catch me if you can or <laughs> or is he gonna die and then he gets hit with the stuff you're like yes yeah, and Bond movies in general don't, generally speaking, I mean, they don't really bring a lot of people back unless it's like Felix Leiter or, um, or you know, because the, like I mentioned, I don't think, I don't think it got left in, but I was talking about the Bond girl problem, like how Bond is so into these women and they're, they share this intense experience together and then it's like, but they can't be together in the next movie because he's Bond. And I think that's going to be a big problem. With well, the it's tech. like Bat- Batman, same thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's why I brought it up, and um, in that in that podcast. But um, I think I think that's going to be a big problem with the new one. Is that he's still he's basically going to be a a bitter, estranged husband because he's going to stay with uh, the French girl from Spectre that he was with, and. In this and you know bringing Boris back, I don't think would have been very satisfying, even as a minor antagonist or like a secondary villain. So yeah, and it was, and it's always good to see those Weasley characters, like you said, get their just desserts. Right. One thing I feel like we have to touch on is uh, a, another staple of Bond movies, and that's the opening uh, credits and the the theme. So what did you did you have any? Uh, are you into like the Bond music, or do you fast forward through that every time? Like, what did you what do you think of Tina Turner's Golden? It depends on the movie. I um for this for this movie, I did rewatch the uh, the opening. Um, did you know who was originally supposed to do the song? Uh, share. No, it was Ace of Base. Remember them. <laughs> Get the hell out of here. Yeah, what? and then they actually had a song all written, and they ended up using it on a later album, and they just replaced the word Goldeneye with some other word that had the same number of syllables, so they wouldn't have to change the melody or anything. Jeez. Yeah, and then Bono and The Edge wrote the song, and I think Tina Turner sung it. Like, I think they did all the all the arrangements and stuff. But yeah, I enjoyed the... She, I, I think she did a good theme. It was definitely way better than other Bond themes I've heard. My, my favorite one, which is not, you know, it's not very Bond super fan, but I, when Chris Cornell did You Know My Name for Casino Royale, that was my favorite Bond song. Uh, what did you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. What did you think, and what was your favorite Bond song? Oh, man. Um... That is good. That is a good question. Um, I, I didn't mind the, uh, Tina Turner version. Um, she, you know, Tina Turner. It's like one of those things. Like, wow, Tina Turner is like a, a, an American icon, and like her being in Bond. And now you look back, like in the mid '90s, she kind of lost steam in terms of like popularity. But uh, you look back, you're like, oh, Tina Turner did a Bond song. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but. Like as opposed to like Ace of Base, like that's weird because because then that like Tina Turner doing the song um, doesn't date it. If you if it's Ace of Base, like wow, that is the most '90s James Bond movie, dude. That that album you were talking about somebody being white hot. That album that that the sign was on sold 50 million copies pre Napster uh, record sales. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, my favorite Bond song. 
what was that one Adele did? I thought that was really good. Oh, uh, Skyfall. Yes. She did the Skyfall song. Very good. Very good. Yeah, Homegirl can sing, that's for sure. She's got a set of pipes, that one. Yeah. Um, okay, so one thing I wanted to mention before we wrap this up, and I meant to get it get to it way earlier, was I know we don't usually do the ca- the whole casting call thing because if we do these big movies, a lot of major actors are going to be considered for it. But um, for this one, so the list the list I have from just the IMDb trivia is you've got they were going to, looking at Liam Neeson, Sam Neill, Hugh Grant, and Lambert Wilson. The casting director was actually leaning towards this guy named John Elliott with one T who is so not famous that he doesn't even have an IMDb profile. So I don't know if that's a stage actor who just never did any film or TV work. So that's who the casting director wanted. Guess who Sean Connery's pick was to be the new Bond. So what, what year? This, this would have been in, in the 90s. His, his choice... To to stand in as the new Bond. Um, oh boy, uh, Nicholas Cage. <sighs> oh man, you completely upstage, but Mel Gibson. Can you imagine Ooh. Mel Gibson as Bond? No. <laughs> God, I thought you'd be a little <laughs> more on board than that. <laughs> no, man. Uh, that that doesn't seem like a fit to me at Dude, all. Dude, I love Mel. I would have loved to have seen Bond, him as Bond, one time. Just acting all crazy and like eating an onion like an apple. Doing Three Stooges bits. Chain smoking. <laughs> now, what are you talking... Now, you're, now, you're not even talking about James Bond anymore. This is like some weird, fantastical Mel Gibson movie that you're writing in your mind. Well, those are just Lethal Weapon bits, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know, but you, yeah. I just, oh, I don't know, I could kind of picture, like, him going for, like, a more old-school Sean Connery vibe, like Sig Dangling, you know? Yeah, I guess so, I guess so. Mel Gibson, though, is Bond. Just think about it. Dude, I, I mean, I, I am thinking about it. Uh, I'm doing that at the very least. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, any final thoughts, I guess, for on, on your end about Goldeneye that you want to throw out there? No, I mean, I, I think, uh, like I said, I, I think you can really make the case that this is the most important Bond movie there is because of bringing a new generation of fans into it and also um, just the fact that the, the franchise was kind of in oblivion. It was kind of, it was it was at a real crossroads, not just in terms of whether or not the movies would get produced, but what direction they were going to take with the Bond character and also... To, to a kind of to a certain degree like they they had to address this new reality where the character existed only within the confines of the Cold War. He was a product of the Cold War. He's a British spy working against Russian interests. And now there's no Cold War, so what direction do you take it in? And I think to their credit, the everybody involved has done a rel- relative they've succeeded to varying degrees. I think to as far as the movies go, there's you know there's a fair amount of Slavic antagonists, but they've kind of gotten away from that, and they've made the change to a new, a new modern paradigm, shall we say? And it also, like I said, worked in the meta commentary about the, not just what was going on at the time, but the Bond character, like some of the things Trevelyan would say to him about. Um, 
if he found protection or if he found forgiveness and all the all the the arms of all those willing women for all the dead ones he failed to protect it was like that's another reason why it's such a great idea to have a character like that because he knows what happens it's like bond uses these women as assets and he thinks he can protect them and he's not always right and that he copes with it by drinking a lot and being a loner and uh and the line about him uh him dying and having a small memorial service with only money penny and a few grieving restaurateurs in attendance that's pretty cutting if you think about it but um yeah i think uh i think i'm really glad we did this movie because in our little uh our little uh kind of scratch pad where we talk about ideas i wrote golden eye for christ's sake not just because of the movie but because of the video game like you mentioned <laughs> um yeah i yeah what about you what are your closing thoughts uh well yeah i agree with you that it's probably the most important bond movie uh to uh, resurrect the franchise give it new life almost reboot it um like uh in every way shape or form give it a fresh spin um and culturally just the video game and everything that came with it is just a once in a generational thing you just don't see that and i don't know that uh, I'd be surprised when the next time we see that happen like that. Um, it's a it's a great James Bond movie. It's also just in a in a vacuum. It's a, just a good you know uh, action spy movie. Uh, you can sit down and watch and not have to worry about the lexicon of the history of the character of James Bond. It's a, it's a very inviting movie for someone to get into the franchise where without feeling overwhelmed about learning about what it came before it uh and i thought pierce brosnan did a great job uh as in his first uh, movie as bond one of those guys that for a decade people have been wondering when he was going to take the role and he finally does and it actually happens and uh just all everything that comes with it so um definitely up there for me and it has the all the remaining things from yesteryear of bond still packed in it which the modern movies can't have, like, you know, especially Desmond uh, Lewin as uh, Q and, and that sort of thing. So a really good movie. Um, and we, we'd be remiss. We probably should have done this at the top if we didn't ask people to uh, subscribe to the podcast. So we're, we're, we're slowly but surely getting picked up on platforms. Uh, uh, as of recording this, we're still waiting on Apple to get us up there. But, we have, you know, we're on Spotify, which is my personal favorite platform, but also Google Play, uh, Google Podcasts um, and uh, Breaker and, and pretty much uh, most places where you're listening to podcasts and hopefully on Apple Podcasts soon. Uh, so uh, please subscribe and, and share if you like it. Uh, share it with a friend who also likes these types of movies and we'll try to grow a little community out of this. But this is a good time, Mike. I'm glad we did Goldeneye. Yeah, me too. I'll take the hit on that one. I was so excited to just jump into this and uh, talk about Bond because like I said, I mentioned him a couple times. <laughs> Uh, we are killing it in the male 25 to 44 demographic. <laughs> yeah, so that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't done any kind of big, like, push for social media to get it out there yet because I've been waiting for us to get an Apple podcast. And then once I do that, I'll, I'll put out the last episode, this episode. And as people are listening, we're going to be shaping more into form in terms of what the you know show's going to be sounding like. Um, and you know, with, uh, you know, music and intros and outros and, and we're trying to, you know, ha hammer a certain amount of time, but, uh, I, I like, this is, uh, this has been a, a good time. I'm glad we did this and I, I'm curious what we're going to pick for our, for our next one. But, um, um since I picked this one, it's going to be your turn to pick the movie. 
I'm excited mm. to see. Do you have one in mind already? I mean, I have a list. Um, I have a list, but I don't. I don't want to. We gotta uh, do Home Alone. I know that. I I think we should just um, if we can get in. I don't know what your schedule's like, but if we can get in two before the end of the year, I say we just do Home Alone and then Die Hard for the Christmas special. Ooh, yes. I like that. Yeah, I'm in. I am in. All right, so Mike, good times. Uh, we hope everyone enjoyed the show. And uh, from us here at Just Like the Movies, uh, we'll see you next time. So be kind, rewind, relax. Good night.